Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, rounding up the best bits of my talk radio Saturday night show. This week, we talk mental health and social media with Matt Hay, meet one woman who's changing the conversation around menopause, and learn why our criminal justice system needs radical reform. First up, it's Matt Haig. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Do you have a moment in your life which, if you could go back, you would change it? You would do it so, so differently. And you know if you could change that moment, everything would be different. Well, that is the premise of the latest book from our next guest. We are joined by a best-selling author, Matt Haig. Hi, Matt. Hi, Harriet. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for giving us just some of your Saturday evening. Um, The Midnight Library is out in September and it asks the question, uh, what is the best way to live? Give us a little summary of the book itself. Um, Yeah, basically, the Midnight Library of the title is this library between life and death where the bookshelves go on forever and it's like a sort of TARDIS-like library um, and each book on the shelves is a different version of the protagonist Nora's life if she'd have lived it differently and and she feels like she's been lived a life full of regret she's had all kinds of things go wrong and so she now finally gets a chance um, to live her life and undo her regrets and see if the grass really is greener on the other side. What was the inspiration for this? Because I'm sure we all have those moments. I mean, as I was asking that question just before we started the interview about, is there a moment in your life you wish to go back to? I vividly went back to the moment that I wish I could change. What was the inspiration or what sparked the thought for this book for you? Well, I think, you know, I've been relatively public about um, my experience of depression and stuff like that. And for me, my kind of uh, my experience with mental health issues has been like they've often been flavoured with like regret and wishing I'd done things differently and wishing I'd sort of like, um, I, I don't know, wishing I'd stayed healthier or wishing what whatever. And, I you know, if you if you're living in regret, you're just living in the past and so I wanted to write a book about how you deal with that and how you accept the present how you accept the sort of imperfect life we have which I think we you know mental health issues or not we all kind of struggle with that how we Mm -hmm. deal with the uncertainty of the present without um yeah wishing we could have done things differently I, I mean and how do we do that because I think particularly at the moment dealing with the uncertainty of the present is 
an ever-present question for all of us. But actually, it's really hard not to have moments where we look at our life and think, oh, if only. If we have those moments, how do we bring ourselves back to, well, we can't change it, we must move forward? Well, I think it's understanding that, like, you know, we don't know. We don't know how other people's lives feel. We don't know how um, our own future will feel. We don't know if things would have been better if we'd have done it differently. And actually, you know, very often in our own lives, if we think about the things that we've often very much looked forward to, sometimes it hasn't actually gone how we imagine it's going to be. And very often also, likewise, the things we absolutely dread, very often they're not quite as bad as as we think them to do. So it's just about, um, you know, not to get too um, Buddhist about it. I've been reading a lot about Buddhism recently, but um, it's about embracing the uncertainty of it all and that's you know you know because uncertainty is a a word we've used a lot this year because obviously we live in very uncertain stressful times but also uncertainty is a sort of like foundation for hope as well so it's about understanding that everything is connected so all our worries are connected to all our hopes all our bad times can actually um, be intrinsically linked to the good times but just not in ways we can necessarily see at that point in time and yeah just accepting the whole picture um, and the whole you know but and that there is probably no perfect life so it's about embracing the imperfection we've got in front of us. I love that idea about embracing uncertainty as hope as because we so often think of uncertainty purely in the negative um can you tell me a little bit about how i guess how that idea is helping you right now well i think this year you know i i i think this year i have had all kinds of um, moments of extreme kind of anxiety but even my sort of most catastrophic um thoughts even though this has been a catastrophic year um my 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 main sort of catastrophizing has not come to fruition in my own life you know i was petrified about my parents getting ill in uh, april and that didn't happen and various things so it's about i suppose it's just always about going back to literally today and to the things we have around us the things we have in front of us and being grateful for what we've got and trying to sort of you know accept that unknown and accept the things we do have because although this year has been horrendous and stressful in all kinds of ways so one thing I've valued is the fact that when because we've had so many things deprived from us we've actually um, realized what we have and that that value has been raised so I think like when we when we lose things we actually the value of what we've got kind of raises up I think there are lots of people who would absolutely echo that sentiment and also the value of some of the simplicity of what we've got as well actually we have been overcomplicating things for a while and yeah going back to the simple it can make life so much easier um do you think that if we are if we better understand how we value what we have do you think that actually this year could possibly be good for our collective mental health um, you know, I, I would obviously love to wave a magic wand and ha- have none of this, uh, yeah. you know, the pandemic going on. I think we all would. But um, I definitely think there will be aspects of this year w- that we carry with us beyond in a sort of post-COVID future. I think there'll be um, 
there will be certain aspects of how we work that's been simpler. For instance, I'm meant to be on a very um, busy, stressful, around the country book tour at the moment, which would have been fun, but it would have been very time consuming, a lot of travel. I've been able to do it all um, from my living room. And in some ways, I've actually communicated with more people, done more things um, by having it done like this. So I, th I think we're learning all kinds of things. We're learning the things that we really, really do miss. And there are a lot of things we really miss. I'm really missing a nice summer holiday yeah. in Greece right now. But there'll be, there's other things, you know, we're getting a delayed or cancelled train um, into London to, to sit around a meeting where you hardly contribute anything at all. And then you go, you know, th those sort of things, you know, I'd rather do on Zoom and downstairs. So I think... We're, we're all itching to get on with normality, whatever that is. But, you know, there will be things that we, we, we want to carry on. And I think it's about simplifying. It's kind of been a, a forced minimalism that we've all had to have because we've, we've obviously had less to do and less in our lives in some way. And, and that has been good and bad um, in different ways, I think. Do you think it's had a sort of levelling impact on our society? I know we've seen some communities much harder hit by it than others, but one of the things that I've really noticed, particularly in this summer holiday period, is that I'm not experiencing the usual sort of August FOMO where I see all my friends off on amazing holidays and I'm sat in work because we're all in the pretty much stuck here in the same place, unable to go anywhere. It It's felt like actually it's taken away a level of the comparison FOMO yeah. that perhaps exists in our society anyway. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of like, that has been in recent years, that's been the curse of our times, hasn't it? It's been quite internet specific yeah. relating to like, you know, Instagram going on and, and you know, you're not comparing yourself to other people's lives. It's other people's best bits <laughs> of their lives. Absolutely. We're not actually seeing the reality and I feel like there was a little bit of that in lockdown I, I feel like some people were thinking oh I'm not doing my lockdown well enough I'm not you yeah. know I'm not bake, baking sourdough doing the tai chi mm -hmm. learning a foreign language there was a little bit of that we, we 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 find quite quickly ways to feel um bad about ourselves but yeah generally I I feel like because we've all had this collective experience where we might have different perspectives about it, but we've all been in the same boat to some degree. Obviously, some have been having it harder than others. Um, I think there has been that sense that, you know, we, we don't have to have continual life envy because other people are having their own um, tough times and stuff like that. So probably psychologically, in terms of that comparison thing, that's been a bit um, healthier mentally. I wanted to ask you actually a bit about social media because you are very active on Twitter and on Instagram. And yeah, so often we talk about some social media as something that is terrible for our mental health. You seem to have found a way to make it work in a way that is actually quite positive for mental health. How do you do that? Well, I don't always do it. I feel like, you know, I, I when it works, it, I find it very good, you know, because... For me, but my when I've had depression in the past before, when I had my breakdown in my twenties, the overriding feeling um, was one of loneliness. And you know, I was first ill um, before social media took off. So I, I, I think in some ways, social media would have 
helped me connect with people who were going through something similar would have made me feel a little bit less alone. And there are obviously very uh, obvious downsides to social media for mental health. You know, the Twitter, the sort of general animosity that's on Twitter, the, mm. the worrying about what you're saying or being pulled pulled apart for, for something. Um, Instagram, it's that comparison thing we've just been talking about. Um, and, you know, I'm not immune to those things, but I've I found a way to balance it. When I was first on Twitter properly about five years ago, I'd be very, very sensitive if, you know, if I said the wrong thing and then, um, yeah. you know, some, someone would criticise, I'd take it so personally and ruin the weekend. I now have a kind of distance where... I mean, if you have, if you're on the internet in any kind of prolific way, you've got any kind of number of followers. You have to be, you have to just accept. Not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to like what what they say, and you, it, that doesn't really matter. You just have to stay liking yourself and not not judging yourself through the eyes of the people who don't like you the most or whatever. And um, not always easy, but yeah, I, I'm getting better at it. Also, I don't have my phone. Um, by my bed anymore because I used to be dreadful first thing in the morning of just yeah. scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. So I forced myself to have it in the kitchen when possible. And um, so I have to actually get out of bed, have some breakfast and uh, start my day like that. One of the things that you do, I think, brilliantly on social media is you sort of you create a community of people who feel very um, supported or gladdened or hope-filled by the words that you put out. Does that feel like a lot of responsibility? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's... I, I mean, I am generally quite um, bad at being responsible <laughs> in terms of, like, you know, for instance, when a charity has come to me in the past and said, oh, do you want to have some kind of official role or become a mental health spokesperson or ambassador or whatever i normally turn those things down because um i don't necessarily feel like i can be responsible for a charity but as i'm just talking for myself and people are responding to that um i i'm kind of fine with that the only time it's been an issue is with when people message you and often they're in a they're in a pickle, they're, they're in a sort of mental health slump, they might even be suicidal, they might even be seriously ill. And that side of it, you know, because I'm someone without uh, qualifications in mental health, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a Samaritan, I've had no training. So that took a little bit of a while to know what to do in those situations and to know who to refer people to and all of that stuff. But, you know, I, I've had a lot of help from a lot of great people like Mind and the Samaritans and stuff who, who helped me with that stuff. Um, Matt, thank you. We're going to keep talking to you. I really want to talk to you about more about the book, The Midnight Library, but also about your writing process and what writing in lockdown has been like. So we're going to keep talking about, about that after this break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Matt, just before the break, we were talking about social media and feeling like you were sort of a... I, want to, I was going to say a hotspot. I'm not sure if that's quite right. <laughs> let's let's go with it. Um, a hotspot for people who needed a bit of hope and joy on social media. Um your books though are very your fiction books are very hope filled they are books that whenever i read them they're sort of they feel like at the end you've been given a bit of a hug is that the sort of writer you always thought you were going to be no definitely (laughs) not actually when i started out um in i think my first book was published in 2004 when i was 26 years old um my first three novels i did which not many people read at the time, um, struggling writer, classic um, situation. I, um, yeah, but my books were quite bleak, actually. They had uh, unhappy endings, typically, and they were sort of comedies, but tragic comedies. And um, they're kind of almost the opposite to what I write now, because they used to start in quite a, a happy place and end in a bad place. And now what I like to do is take a, a person or a situation which is terrible, and then somehow try and find the hope inside it and lead towards a better place. And and I used to be very sort of suspicious and um, cynical about happy endings and everything being happy and all of that stuff. But I've actually weirdly become more optimistic with age. I think, uh, I don't know what, what's, parent, parenthood might be part of that. But also, I think recovering from depression has been part of that. Yeah. So in a strange way, um depression ended up making me more optimistic because obviously when you, you you're in a state of depression you, you your whole worldview becomes as a symptom very pessimistic and you believe every worst case scenario and you know in my case i literally thought i was going to die by the age of 25 and this that and the other and you hold on long enough and you realize that all of that stuff or most of that stuff that depression's telling you isn't true you know depression lies and so actually a, a clearer a more useful philosophy would have been optimism so actually pessimism was the thing that was fake so um yeah slowly over time i've become 
uh, optimistic, not totally happy, clappy, but you know, actually recognizing the darkness, but trying to find um, some some positivity and light within it, if that makes sense. How have the people that have known you through all of that change adapted to optimistic, Matt? Um, well, I think generally it's quite positive. I feel like. My, my children were the source of that change. So I've, I've sort of been that version of me since they've been around. And I think I'm easier uh, to live with and more calmer to live with um, for my wife these days as I get older and mellower. And um, I've been, I'm, I'm very lucky as well that my, um, my mum and dad have been very open and very um, good with me talking about mental health. Because obviously for that generation and for parents generally, it can be quite upsetting and sensitive to hear about your child talking about suicidal feelings or depression and everything, but they've both been really great and they've sort of, yeah, uh, supported me and they're pleased that I'm in a, a much happier, more optimistic point in my life now. Um, Reasons to Stay Alive, which is the book you wrote about your depression coming through it, became an international bestseller I know people who have read it and had their lives changed by it when you wrote it did you think I am doing did it were you doing it for other people or did you think I'm just doing this for me because I've just got to get this down on paper I think it's it was both it was definitely felt like self-therapy when I was writing it 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 was literally the first time I'd publicly come out and talked about um, my mental health. Up until that point, it was literally my partner and my parents who I'd spoken to about it. So it was, it felt a kind of coming out of a closet of, of mental illness. Um, and so, so in that sense, it was for me. I obviously wanted it to be useful for other people. The one reader I had in mind was was 24-year-old me when I was literally on a sort of cliff edge and wanting to die I, I I was trying to see if it was a way very simply and clearly and not in an academic highbrow way just very accessibly could, could convey some kind of hope to a person in that state knowing what I knew from my recovery obviously it's kind of a subjective book because it's about my experience yeah. I'm not a doctor I don't have all the answers but I think people, you know, if you write about mental health, honestly enough, I think people just respond to it and they have that feeling of not being so alone and also um, of, of realising that just because they're in this particular state at this particular point in time, they're not always going to have the exact same feelings or attitudes to their mind. And I think it's that belief in change um, which gives people hope. Mm. Um, and if you've been affected by any of the issues Matt's talking about there, do please check out the Samaritans website, samaritans.org, or call them on 116-123. Um, Matt, recently you have been really open and vocal about the debate around diversity in publishing. And you took part in something that I thought was incredibly brave, which is an open tweet about how much you were paid for all of your books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not. Listen, I am someone who has raised to be, you know, we don't talk about money. You know, money is, is kind of like a taboo. There's, there's sex, death and money and you don't talk about these things. 
and um, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I'd got into a conversation with someone on Twitter, a friend actually, Nikesh Shukla, and I, I know him in publishing, and we got into it, and he, he had done, he'd done, taken part in it, in this publishing paid me, and he was sort of bemoaning that no white authors, and you know, certainly no white male authors had, um, had 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 you know come clean about what they've been paid and uh, and then you know he, he asked me not in a sort of like pushy way but he just yeah. said oh you know why don't you do? and I didn't have a reason not to at that point and I I felt like you know it was, wasn't about me it's about something bigger it's just about and I honestly thought it would encourage other uh, authors of my equivalent in publishing to. Um, to do the same but that that didn't exactly happen so i was sort of like the only uh well I, i'm sure there were a, a few others but I, it felt like i was the only sort of white male uk author who did it and i wasn't trying to say oh i'm overpaid or i'm underpaid or yeah. you know it's, it's just like i feel like you you can only analyze a situation if there's transparency so i wasn't doing it you know to prove any personal point i was just to take part in the collective um picture of publishing and obviously you know the ho whole issue of author advances is intriguing anyway you know yeah. uh, but but with the sort of political slant and the sort of heated nature of this conversation around diversity it took on an extra um traction and i got a little bit of flack on both sides because obviously some people thought oh well you don't have to do that why are you pandering and then the other side said <laughs> I said, who would pay you X amount for, you know... The joy um, of social media, never without an opinion, so, yeah. Exactly. So I thought, but, at the, but most people, to be fair, were quite supportive of pretty much everyone who um, took part in that. And, uh, no, it, it, was, it was kind of a good thing. It's one of those things that are based around hashtag that you never really know if it's actually going to have any yeah. real-world effects. But it, it felt like the right thing to do at the point in time. One of the things I thought was really interesting about it was because you've obviously published several books in different genres at different times, you know, it was actually seeing that as an author, it, it's sort of, um, it is a bit haphazard, you know, so some years it feels like you're king of the walk and next year you write a book you think is equally brilliant <laughs> and everyone's like, mm, not so sure. Do you, Yes. have you really had to learn as an author how to separate your sense of self-esteem from, I guess, kind of what people are going to give you as an advance, what people are going to write about your reviews? And as someone who is sort of open about their mental health, how do you do that and protect your mental health at the same time? Well, these sort of weeks where you have a book out, mm. it's it's the kind of most uh, neurotic kind of weeks for an author. And actually, this year has felt quite um, intense because I think because I'm not out and about around the country and I'm just at home and just sort of doing media, watching media and, and stuff, it's felt like I can really keep a track of it. And that's not a good thing. You don't want to be checking your Amazon ranking every five <laughs> seconds or all of that. But um, no, I, I feel like the longer you, you go on, the sort of slightly more secure you feel. And I feel like in some ways I've, I've had an almost old-fashioned kind of career, which is increasingly rare, unfortunately, I think, in publishing, where where you start small and generally sort of grow and find your readers with time. Um, what the trend now is um, often for a very 
uh, hype debut, um, which is great for that moment, but then it can lead to people losing interest in your second. And I'm quite thankful that I, I, I was able to sort of grow beneath the radar, as it were, so I could mistake, make my writing mistakes quite out of the um, spotlight. What advice, finally, would you give to any any wannabe writers who are doing it because they want to write a book or simply because they have something within them that they want to put down on paper? What What's your advice for them? I think, you know, it's about being totally honest, being honest about what you want to do and why you want to do it. Um, try and write something that doesn't exist yet and that's the reason for writing it i think that's always i mean that was certainly was with me with reasons to stay alive the incentive to write it came out of the fact that a book like that didn't exist when i needed it so i thought i'd write that book in case other people could have it um and also you know be once you've actually got the thing and written the thing in terms of finding an agent finding a publisher you then although it doesn't always come easy for writers you have to kind of be thick skinned you have to sort of like just just hold on and believe in yourself and actually ex expect rejection because every mm. single writer you can think of every some number one best-selling writer you has gone through a lot of rejection so sometimes it's it's obviously about having a little bit of talent and a little bit of something there but it's also about that doggish um persistence like it is in so many fields and i think i had something like 40 um rejections for my first novel from agents and publishers together and and um i i was almost in a state where i sometimes actually welcomed them if they if they had something constructive within that rejection if they looked like they read it I, i'd see that as my um creative writing course that's fantastic advice, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, the Midnight Library, Matt's new book is out now. It's, um, like I said, if you, want, if you want a hug of a book, it is a hug of a book, Matt Haig there. And um, if you were touched or affected by any of the issues we talked about, do please check out Samaritans.org or give them a call 116123. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. So we are starting tonight with Nina Coopers, founder of Black Women in Menopause. Hi, Nina. Good evening. Firstly, I'd just like to say thank you for having me on tonight's show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, so tell us, first of all, why do we? why do you think we need to be talking about the menopause specifically when it comes to black women? So... <laughs> Black women are, have a limited knowledge and understanding about the term menopause. Mm -hmm. And they may be putting their health at risk because of their limited knowledge of what menopause is and how it can affect them. And to me personally, that risk, because of it, I'm scared in terms of me developing things like osteoporosis and having a detrimental effect on other health complications. So it's important to get that message out there. Why do you think there is less understanding about the menopause within the black community? It's a taboo subject anyway, and it's become more of a, an open topic in the last couple of years. You know, there's many great mm -hmm. platforms out there educating ladies and supporting but again it's not reaching the black community 
Mm-hmm. Um, for, for me, that just goes to show when I have gone into the menopause and I'm just one month away of then going past menopause into post-menopause, mm. that I find it slightly unnerving that there isn't that support mm-hmm. as a black woman. Yeah. And particularly when you look at, you know, there isn't a lot of research out there having it anyway, mm-hmm. and specifically towards black women. Um, we need to spread the message. Yeah. You know, scatter a seed and then the next generation, even my son knows about it and he's eight. So have you been through the menopause personally then? Yes. <laughs> and did it sort of, sorry to be personal, but did it, no, were you suddenly it. like, do you know what, today feels like it's a bit strange today. I wonder what's going on. Were you sort of taken by surprise by it? I couldn't, you know, I don't recall when I became familiar with when I was going through it, there was particularly one incident where I went to the GP surgery and it was for something else. And she said to me, oh, you're perimenopausal. But I left without any information. Mm. And then as I went away and let that sink, you know, sink in, I then had to self-direct myself to that information but I, you know, I know I am now looking at, you know, trolling the world by web with my big sausage <laughs> fingers. Uh, <laughs> hence me finding out this lack of research, particularly for black women and that research that there is. Those symptoms and people are well versed in terms of, oh, it's a hot flush or, you know, <laughs> fatigue. But there's many other symptoms, headaches, joint pains, and now I of the symptom jigsaw together I realised that that's what I was going through mm. a few years back Are there any specific symptoms that black women are more likely to suffer from? So again, as I said it's difficult to to pinpoint because there's only been one study in the UK and there are nationality wow. differences and that was back in 2007 and <laughs> there's only 22 black and when I say black, it was actually oh. black and ethnic minority women, you know, and that's not representative of no. the black community anyway. Um, mm-hmm. The next one that we could, say, try and make a comparison was in um, the USA. And they found that uh, black women, though it's also involved for Latino women, we have menopause two years earlier. Severe symptoms in terms of hot flushes, um, headaches, itchy skin. But for me personally, and the average age is 51, but for a black woman, what they found is actually 49. Oh, wow. But again, it's difficult to separate race and ethnicity from socioeconomic factors. Is there a taboo, do you think, within black communities about actually talking about this? I mean, did you ever talk about the menopause with your mother, for example? So I have, but I suppose part of it, in terms of my own personal experience, you know, and, and it is a deeply personal experience mm. for me, is it depends on your family circumstances and, yeah. and what it is. So I've been quite fortunate that I can have a conversation, but there's many people you know, many women out there, and it, 
it directly affects everyone. So for me personally, I would say, yes, it is a taboo subject overall, mm. but at the same time, it's lack of education, knowledge yeah. and understanding about what it is, even if it's just to scatter a seed, because we're well-versed in the art of, you know, in the mm-hmm. advert of periods and pregnancy. And there are adverts on TV, but starting a discussion about menopause, a barrier goes up, a tumbleweed. And I'm not saying, you know, advocating, oh, I want to have an open, honest discussion on a bus. But we should be having discussions about it because it does affect our health. There's nothing we can do about this. This will be with us. Mm. You know, it's a natural process that we will take to the grave. And I don't want other women as yeah. well as black women, of all women, to suffer in silence. And so what are you doing to try and uh, encourage conversation in this area? So I only actually threw out, I'd say, a, a pebble in the beginning of July, just to see, because I, I did, as I said, search in that worldwide web for information. Um, and of course, the bit of a ripple on Twitter not really realising what would come back. And it's been positive, but at the same time, it's reinforced that there needs to be a platform for black women to increase their knowledge and understanding. So what I've done now is set up a Facebook page and, you know, it's not a medical page. It's a safe place for black women. And I say specifically black women, any woman can come, including men, because they can carry it. It directly affects everybody. Absolutely. Physical, mental and social. Yeah. Um, to openly discuss their experience, connect and support. And even though the majority of symptoms can be generic, what I want to talk about is the physical differences, like my hair, so it does get mm. thinner, but due to the reduction in oestrogen, my hair has now become, well, I look like a frag rock anyway at the moment. Um, <laughs> Don't we all? That's lockdown for you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I probably look like that 95% <laughs> of the time with my hairdresser you. Um, so it's different in terms of that aspect. The, the advice is generic. But if I go into a medical support group and say, you know, what would you recommend for my hair? Yeah. It's kind of, oh, yeah. Um, silence. Yeah. And it's great that, that, that you know, that, that platform is there for the support, but yeah. I just want that additional support. To... Yeah. And that includes the skin and things like that. Yeah. You know, it's so, it is. It's such a topic. <laughs> oh, it really is. And I'm so pleased that you are taking it on and addressing it because I think, like you say, there are going to be so many women out there who, and this is when, you know, it's, I realise, you know, I realise as a white woman in our very white society, like how how skewed the information out there is because I'm not having to think about where can I go to get some information about my hair? Because there are loads of spaces. But the fact that you are creating that space for black women to talk about that, I think is really important. So thank you so much for doing it and so much for coming on here and talking to us about it now. Um, That's Nina Cooper's founder of Black Women in Menopause. You can find her on Twitter, twitter.com, BLK Menopause. Also on Facebook, uh, do go 
particularly if you're a black woman, but also, quite frankly, if you are a white woman with uh, friends that you want to support, do go check her out and share what she's doing. It's an amazing resource and I think, as she says, very much needed. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Matt Haig was on uh, earlier talking about how writing helped him survive it and Kate Nichols, same thing. Um, her new book, Under the Camelthorn Tree, looked at how she and her children came back from PTSD. But what about our children today and the rise of youth violence in this country? Uh, we know that between 2009 and 2019, 193 teenagers were killed in London. Now, those murders are only the tip of the iceberg. Every day we see more and more victims of serious physical harm. The criminal justice system arrests them, put them through and then sends them back out again. But where is the help before and after these situations occur? Well, here to talk to us about what should be done, we have Temi Moali, Executive Director for The Forefront Project. Hi, Temi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So tell us to start, what is The Forefront Project and what do you want to achieve? So Forefront is a member-led youth organisation supporting young people and communities to fight for justice, peace and freedom. And we support young people who have experienced violence and or the criminal justice system to create change in their own lives, in their local communities and in society more broadly. And I really appreciate your introduction to this issue because ultimately serious youth violence can't be detached from other forms of violence that we have mm. in society and if we understand the impacts of violence as you said you know on people's mental health we would prioritize the kind of support that centers healing rather than simply punishment and which doesn't address the root causes of the issue so part of our work and our remit is to help the rest of the public understand some of those root causes so that as society we can we can address them in a much more sophisticated way. Well I think one of the things I was really taken with when I was reading about the work you're doing is this idea that actually there isn't enough consideration and action being taken on what causes this violence and actually if we started there rather than after the event we might find a better solution. So what do you think? Because I'm sure, you know, people listening to this will have their own views about what they think causes young people to be violent. But what do you think are the root causes of violence? Well, there are many and it's mm. obviously a very complex issue. But I think something that's really important to mention is in this country, the structural inequality that we have means there are many environments that enable violence to thrive. And those environments you know poverty in and of itself could be seen as a form of violence but in particular the way that it limits people's opportunity it limits people's ability to progress within society and it also is about the kind of austerity that we've seen in this country and how that has limited the kind of support services whether for people's health their mental health or whether it's mm. education or all the things that people rely on so poverty is a big part of it but in addition to that I think even the point you've just made about what happens after the violence, mm. there's a cycle. And the fact that violence isn't being addressed and the impacts that violent, violence has, not just on young people's lives, but on our whole communities and how people have been or become 
desensitized to this violence and how you know a lot of people are numb and even mm. the idea of ptsd is something that we kind of struggle with because what it means is post-traumatic stress disorder but something we talk a lot about is you can't have ptsd if you're not living post-trauma so when mm. young people are living in these environments they're suffering from perpetual communal trauma you know they don't have enough time to heal from one incident before there's another incident and these layers of conflict and trauma is part of the cycle that needs to be addressed um art you know addressing in the aftermath is part of prevention if we were to see it like that that would be a real step in the right direction but unfortunately not enough movement in that direction has has taken place i mean i think that's absolutely fascinating and incredibly insightful there which is that it is we see violence as a cycle so we know that for example uh, children who experience violence in the home are more likely to grow up uh, and perpetuate that violence themselves we know that um, young offenders who find themselves placed in prison are then more likely to be exposed to violence again and to take that violence outside with them how well, do... I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because mm. actually that's one of the really important factors to look at. Mm. The society we live in has a single approach to addressing violence, and that is by using our criminal justice system. But exactly as you've said, the rates of serious violence within the criminal justice system, within prisons in this country, and the other institutions that form part of the criminal justice system is horrendous. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we would send children and others to these institutions and think they may even be able to rehabilitate when they're being exposed to so much trauma and harm is quite ludicrous really and so part of what we are advocating for is to say if the mechanisms or the systems that we create to address violence are themselves inflicting violence and harm and trauma in people's lives that forms part of this oh Temi, I'm sorry, we've just lost we've lost Temi there for a minute. Hopefully we'll get her back because it's so... What she's talking about is so important, which is the cycle of violence. And she raised what I thought was a really fascinating idea there, which is we talk a lot about PTSD, but we can't talk about post-traumatic stress. We haven't been post-trauma because we're still in the cycle. I think we've got her back again. Hi, Temi. Sorry, not sure what that's, happened there. That's joy of technology for you. Um yep. We were talking about actually the criminal justice system and people being stuck in that cycle of violence, even when they're within the criminal justice system, which is supposed to be stopping the violence. Well, exactly. And I think if as a society we could admit that Mm. our criminal justice system perpetuates as much harm and inflicts as much trauma in people's lives, we would actually really want to reduce our reliance on it because it contributes to furthering that that perpetuation of this issue and this cycle that I've just spoken about. Why do you think we do rely on it? It's interesting because we haven't always in the way that we do today. I mean, we've seen a huge increase in our prison population. I mean, in this country, it's around 80,000 people at the moment. And, you know, that's massive. Even our youth prison estate has increased. And the truth is, I think it's about trying to hide the issues and but as you know Angela Davis who really inspires me Mm. as she once said prisons don't disappear you know social problems they disappear human beings and we have to ask ourselves would we rather put all of our issues under the rug and hide them and disappear people in order to do that or actually provide real 
healing communal services that will support people to progress in their life and reduce this reliance on these systems which just you know put people in cages yeah. the way we treat our most vulnerable in society is the best indication of who we are as a society and if we look to our criminal justice system and those that we have warehoused in, in these prisons I think it's quite damning on our country as a whole. One of the uh, stats that I was reading about in your report is that um, between 2015 and 2018, black victims accounted for 42% of homicide victims in London. And that these statistics are used to justify harsher policing, uh, to kind of, uh, let's say, police harassment and brutality. And that actually what we're then setting up is a system in which uh, black people, particularly black boys and men, feel that they've already been seen as criminals and therefore they're already part of that community. So there's almost no incentive not to be. How? What impact do you think that has then on how the black community feel about the criminal justice system here in the UK? I think the more important question or, or issue to look at is the way in which structural and institutional racism within mm -hmm. policing and the criminal justice system more broadly actually contributes to this issue. For example, yeah. if young black people are targeted through the use of stop and search and, and through other tools as well mm -hmm. and have the sense that the police are not there to protect them or to yeah. support them and that they only experience a police force rather than a police service, if they feel under threat or like they need help, they're not going to call the police. Yeah. And that's something that we see. And so the relationship between in particular young black people and the police, I think, is a really huge contributing factor to the violence we see. Because if you can't rely on the formal mechanism to deal with conflict in this country, you resort to mm -hmm. trying to deal with it yourself and not feeling you have any other options. And that's, again, something else that I think is very damning in our society. That point is, I'm silent because that point is just so important and has, you know, slightly blown my mind in how obvious it is and yet how little we talk about it, which is, you know, if you don't trust the community that is supposed to keep you safe to keep you safe, why would you call them? Why would you interact with them? And therefore your chances of being safe are are lessened. Um, I think you just put that absolutely brilliantly. What do you think are some of the things that structurally we need to do to change this? And what are some of the things that Forefront are doing? It's about investing in people's lives and investing in their healing. Mm -hmm. And so it's acknowledging that, you know, the experiences of violence, those that have experienced it directly, but even our communities that have been indirectly impacted, you know, not as primary victims, but whether it's the mothers or just the friends, knowing so many young people who have been killed or young people who have been injured or who have even gone to prison for harming others. The mm. fact that there's no space to actually discuss this and the impact that it has as I said before on people's mental health and how that impacts our whole community in our understanding and you know as I said before the desensitization I think investing in communal and collective healing is, is something that we must do as a priority and those types of provision should be community-based and community-led and at the same time as we're doing that we really do need to really reduce the scale and of policing in particular because as I said before if we rely on this institution which does inflict harm and appears to be 
unwilling to be held accountable for the harm it does inflict or even to acknowledge the harm it inflicts. But there's nothing safe about, you know, children experiencing raids of their home in, in the middle of the night or mm -hmm. the use of strip search and, and intimate searches of, of children, which is carried out, I'm sure, without most people in the, in the mm -hmm. wider society understanding that it happens or the targeting um, that we see through the powers such as stop and search, which are used so disproportionately that it only has a significant impact on particular communities with others saying, if you don't have anything to, to hide, then you shouldn't have anything to fear. But that's not the point. No. It's those structures which really alienate and marginalise people. And within that, there is no space for healing. And so we need to reduce the scale of the criminal justice system as a whole and policing, as well as simultaneously increasing our communal infrastructure towards healing and emotional support and therapeutic services for our whole communities. And I think that would really make an impact. I mean, I think it would make a huge impact. And that point that you made there about people saying, you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. I just, when I hear that, I feel a, a level of rage because I'm, I sort of feel like, well, actually, if you were stopped every single day, if you were looked at or judged or physically searched, held down, accused every day of your life, you, regardless of whether you had something to hide or not, you would be exhausted by it. And why can we not have a level of compassion and understanding that that's not okay? It's not okay for this to happen. It's not okay to stop and search people based on their colour on their race on their physicality uh, without any evidence sorry that just I've yeah thank you for yeah, raising that's very important of policing one last thing mm -hmm. I would say is that so often we're asking police to deal with issues that have nothing to do with you know crime and as I mm -hmm. say in inverted commas they're dealing yeah. with mental health issues they're dealing with other things that they're, they're not trained or equipped to do and quite frankly I don't think they want to be dealing with those mm -hmm. things and they're not appropriate to deal with those things and so in that sense it does everybody you know in society more good to have properly funded mental health support services and outreach services rather than relying on police to try and deal with every problem in society it's just not appropriate mm. and we can't we can't expect them to do that and expect there to be no consequence when people who are not qualified or trained or you know make mistakes as they're doing it but they must be held accountable and I think one last thing I would like to say is mm. you know when people hear the phrase no justice no peace I just want to make it very clear and you know we've heard the resurgence of this with mm. the you know reinvigoration of the Black Lives Matter movement etc but it doesn't mean that people want to burn everything down or riot mm. it's really a call and a cry to say if we don't have justice in our lives we're, we're not going to experience peace in our lives in our communities or in our society if we live in a place that is not able to hold people accountable and where you have police who you know are supposed to be the gatekeepers of safety and peace and justice you know not being held accountable for the mistakes they have made that is not a safe place to live and everyone should be held accountable for their actions and that doesn't happen at the moment they absolutely should Temi thank you so much for joining us and telling us about the work of the Forefront Project you're doing incredible work Temi Moali their executive director for the Forefront Project talking about youth violence and the things that actually need to happen if we want to break the cycle. Um, her incredible description there of violence as a cycle that is 
our criminal justice system is a part of that cycle. It doesn't sit outside of it or exempt from it. It adds to it and repeats it. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 